Una O'Reilly is the Sales and Marketing Director at the ICC Belfast, the organization that represents the Belfast Waterfront Hall and the Ulster Hall. The former is, without doubt, an iconic music venue acknowledged and recognized across the two islands and beyond, and the the Waterfront Hall is fast becoming the destination of choice for conferences and conventions. Um, Una has a rich track record in sales, sales management and sales leadership, previously working at the Northern Ireland Chamber of Commerce as business uh, development manager, and following that, a uh, very successful stint at the IFA, where she was the first female director at that organisation in over 130 years. Her legacy remains to this day uh, in what is a very vibrant and commercially relevant sporting property. After the podcast, I was really immediately drawn to the Start With Why book by Simon Sinek. The book has sold over well over a million copies and his TED Talk has got 61 million views and is the third most watched TED Talk of all time. And in this podcast, Una is clearly following a fairly well-defined purpose. Um, she's, if you're familiar with her on LinkedIn, she's very uh, energetic and very vocal and extremely positive. And that's reflected in this podcast and indeed all of her work. She is um, a real energizer and has got a clear sense of what needs to be done and what she wants to do and her track record uh, sort of speaks for itself. We cover a lot of ground that will be relevant to you if you're in sales management or sales leadership and you want to get some tips on how to streamline your focus. If you're in sales or you want to improve your sales skills or improve your performance then you get an idea of what's possible with a little bit of drive and and that word again focus. So delighted to introduce to you Una O'Reilly. Una, how are you doing? Oh, good. Yeah, can't complain. Well, life's good. Thanks very much for um, coming on the podcast. Um, as with most most guests, I try and start off with finding out a bit of background. So you want to just talk a little bit about your career in sales and what you're doing currently? Yeah, well, I'll not start at the very start because um, I was actually a cattle dealer's daughter and sold calves um, before I ever left school. So um, we'll not talk about that, but I suppose... We we'll, talk, we'll, we'll, we'll come back to that. We'll come back to that. <laughs> you can come back to that one. But we'll look at, this was my career over this past 10, 14 years. I was uh, sales and marketing, or I'm currently sales and marketing at ICC Belfast, the Waterfront Ulster Hall. Prior to that, the Irish Football Association, the sales and marketing director. And then I spent six years as business development director at the Northern Ireland Chamber of Commerce. So if I look at this was what I've been working on, what my core purpose is, um, first time I ever voted, um, Paul, was in the Good Friday Agreement. Okay. Um, the big thing for me is that we now have peace. We now need prosperity. So I've sort of looked at my career, I suppose, over the past 14 years and dedicating it to actually driving economic growth. So business development director of the Chamber, quite obvious from a Northern Ireland football, um, at the Irish Football Association, the big driver that I was there was looking at how I leveraged uh, the success on the pitch of the Euros in 2016 to build the brand and reputation of Northern Ireland through a fan engagement. And now at the at the ICC Belfast, it's about bringing international conferences um, to Northern Ireland, showcasing the best that we have in key sectors aligned to the 10X strategy. So it's been good, but I, I think for me, my career steeped in my why in terms of trying to make a difference. 
That's interesting. So just as there's a theme that I've kind of noticed there, whether it's strategic or not, you can explain. But everything you're selling, um, that platform is so far outside of your control. So if I was working in a business, I could affect the change of the quality of the product, the quality of the customer service. I could change the production process. I can change distribution. You're working on behalf of kind of Northern Ireland PLC, Northern Ireland PLC and then Belfast PLC. And a lot of that is out with your control, really. Um, it is and it isn't. Um, I suppose if you look at the, if I, if I look at how I take things apart, I, I don't worry about the money bit from a sales perspective. You know, if you get the, the brand and image, if you get your brand right, um, if you get p- people participating and you build a community, um, if you get your digital piece right, the money follows, the commercials follow after that. And whether that is looking at driving membership um, across the Chamber of Commerce and getting people bought into moving forward from there to the actual football. That being said, of football, you know, every match, you know, you knew you had a good four or five months ahead of you for one, and it was going to be that bit harder if Northern Ireland got beat. And and just so so the the value is more important than, than the money. Um, do you find that an easy sell internally to the other stakeholders within the business for to buy into that strategy? Well, I'll put it this way: money talks. Uh, but the best way to drive and to deliver growth is making sure you've got your brand and image, your comms right, and that actually drives the commercials. So you can go piecemeal at it and get lucky, low-hanging fruit, or you can take a strategic approach, which is let's get a spearhead, start the top, which making sure the brand image is correct, and then you build your community, you build your participation, people getting involved, and then you build your digital strategy with that, and then it all falls through to the commercials. And everything was going swimmingly for you for the Belfast Waterfront Hall and the Ulster Hall at the same time, and then COVID happened. Yeah, it was uh, a setback. Bit of a setback. So, like, I suppose you could say our star was in the rise in terms of we rebranded Belfast Waterfront to be ICC Belfast for the International Convention Centre. Um, we had the Waterfront Hall, the Ulster Hall, in terms of entertainment. Um, we found out via tweet um, that we were mandated shut. Um, on the 16th of March, we had 90 events happening in the next 90 days. We had thousands of tickets sold for concerts concerts, um, and we had 30 plus events in terms of business events that were due to take place. I mean, for us, I suppose if I take it a wee bit before that, we had seen that COVID was on the horizon, you know. And we've seen it in Milan and China. Uh, we thought, right, you know what, there's a real opportunity here because we'd lost a piece of business to China um, a conference that we had bid for and that, that picked Beijing over us. So randomly, we decided to put together a marketing campaign. If you were meant to have your conference in Milan or China, come to Belfast. <laughs> we'll be able to take you in September with specific dates. But to the, by the time it came out of the designers, um, not only was COVID on our rest register, but uh, we were about to be shot. So that was the end of that. So and how did when was it... Um that you were able to start taking a, you were doing hybrid events at one point, I remember seeing. Yeah, so I suppose the, the first things first, I mean, everybody everybody was shocked, you know, like the, the world was in shock. Um, one thing we were very conscious of is that we were going to be the first to shut down and definitely the last to open. Mass gatherings were like the worst of the worst. 
Um, so as a as a business, we work really closely with clients um, in that we were really flexible with contracts. We leveraged the contracts that we had to do two-year deals. And then we realized that we needed, we didn't know when we were going to get to open again. So we were rescheduling events, putting them in for a year in advance, trying to get a two-year deal, come back to us in 2025 as well as going in 22 or 23. Um, we then very quickly realized that we needed to do, do something front of mind. So 89% of our staff were furloughed um, with a guy, Dave, that had only started in February. He's our head of production. And he came with an idea. Somebody in Birmingham was doing it in a studio. And look, these guys are doing um, virtual events. He says, I think we could do it in, in our studio where we normally have the pantomime. So if you've seen the state of the camera that we had beforehand, like we were not set up for this. A lot of what we would have brought in is hired in kit depending on the conference. So we put a business case together and got cameras, got a backdrop. We actually, the Northern Ireland Chamber, ran an event with us. Um, it was a leadership event. They needed to run something quite high end. Um, so we brought it in socially distanced. Um, we were in the arena just fighting a good fight. I mean, I was stagehand at one stage and the marketing um, executive was working one of the cameras. Um, like we were literally all hands on deck. Um, we had a lot of lessons learned from that. I mean, it didn't, would you say it was perfect? No, but we came out of that saying, you know what, there's something in this. We, we know we have to make this work. And we worked, we actually put in for funding with Tourism Northern Ireland. And we said, like, we need to be hybrid. You know, we need to be out there. Um, we bought an LED wall. Um, we So we went to the board and we got investment, even though we were mandated shut. And like I led my neck in the line. I says, you know, we'll make the money back in two years, you know. And as soon as we open, we'll definitely make the money back. But even when we're closed, it gives us a reason to talk to clients. And we used the LED wall. So we had a Zoom meeting a bit like this. And it was with a European conference, 800-person um, conference for 2026. And they thought they were coming onto a Zoom call with Visit Belfast, Hastings Hotels, I think we're in it um, ourselves, our event manager. But instead of them coming onto a Zoom call with everybody with a wee square, boom, we were in the studio and we're all socially distanced. We had a big LED wall. We were able to really vividly sell Belfast in Northern Ireland and I suppose show how we were the best fit and we were able to do sales. And because of the impact, um, we actually closed business Whilst we were mandated shut with no idea if and when we'd open again, we were closing business and actually delivering in terms of, of Belfast and Northern Ireland from an economic impact perspective. But it was hard graft, Paul. It was yeah. hard graft. You, you've kind of alluded to the hard graft with the um, humble beginnings in the cattle rustling sector. Oh, not Rosslyn, no, no, no. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm only kidding. The, the reason I want to, um, I kind of have that lineage somewhere further on the track. I think we all do. And um, I remember at a, a conference, one of the speakers said, um, it was in Belfast, he said that the further away you get from those days of cattle dealing, the harder it is for people to fully understand and appreciate true negotiation and selling and the hard work behind it. So I, I genuinely will come back to you on that. Um, Una, they, they, you're doing a lot of partnerships and collaborations with the ICC then. So you mentioned the hotel groups and presumably Jerry Lennon and Visit Belfast and those guys. Um is that an easy thing to do, working on behalf of a collective like that, to get singular thinking? Do you know what? It, so I worked in football, right, before I worked at the ICC. And in football, 100% of the time, at least 50% of the people disagree with you. 
just the nature of a football match. Not everybody wins. Whereas with the ICC, the Waterford Ulster Hall, like we have an ethos that when we win, everyone wins. Mm-hmm. So every, like the hotels want to see us fill. Um, Visit Belfast have a shared goal in terms of driving economic impact, in terms of aligning to the 10X strategy. So we work hand in glove with Visit Belfast. Because we have such a shared goal, it's not like Visit Belfast are trying to, I don't know, drive up cruise ships and use us for cruise ships. We're not in that space. Of course, they're doing that, but we're not aligned to it. The bit where there's business events and business tourism, we're so aligned. Um, So the business development director, Rachel, I work hand and glove for my team, work hand and glove with her team, and we will do joint meetings. So it's, you would think it should be harder, um, but because it's just one big team, it's that bit easier. But don't get me wrong, there's times you turn around because you're not in the same office. You know, because you're not, you don't have full visibility of what everybody's doing. Wouldn't it be amazing if we all, like, you know, could all work around the one table all the time? Um, but no, we're like, we're really lucky in that it's a, it's a very solid front. Plus, it's a real USP because a lot of cities don't have what we have in terms of that collaborative approach. And that was the next question. So, and some of those other cities you mentioned, like Beijing and, and Milan, is there some kind of hierarchy or? tiering system where you you kind of know your lane and you compete with a certain city based on what they can offer or do you is it open season and you just you're after anything that moves within reason well if you work in sales and you're after anything that moves you're going to be a very busy fool um for us we fight in the arena where we really believe we can win um there are cities that are tiered so for example london paris new york they would all be in the same stable. So if you're thinking of running a conference, um, you wouldn't necessarily think, oh, I'm going to go to Paris or Belfast. Um, That being said, sometimes we might compete against Paris, but we're more likely to be competing against Dublin, Glasgow, Birmingham, um, some European cities, uh, but we typically won't go head-to-head with Barcelona because it's so much bigger than us. Mm-hmm. Uh, we Frankfurt huge. You know, like their convention center has got you could put the ICC in it twelve times over. Mm-hmm. You know, literally have twelve. Like it's acres of ground that they're that they're set in. Um, so no, we 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 do fight in the arena that we think we can that we can win. Um, the areas where we're really good at is a collaborative approach. We're really joined up in terms of the sectors that we can go after. So cybersecurity is a really good one for us. Advanced manufacturing, robotics, um, food technology, um, life sciences, we do brilliantly, particularly oncology. We're really good at cancer. So there's some things where we have a really strong, our universities are really strong, really strong research. So it becomes a really compelling reason um, to actually choose Belfast for your conference. So part of, um, I get occasionally asked to sit on um, recruitment panels when they're recruiting for uh, salespeople and various other members of, of staff. And one of the things that I was taught way back was the gimmick whereby, it is gimmicky, like, but if you ask, if you're recruiting somebody from, say, an engineering background, they're going to just sell an engineering thing if you ask them to do a presentation. So one of the presentations that, that I would, uh, the environment I would set up would be, they would um, be the head of the Belfast Chamber of Commerce. The panel would be Toyota Motor Corporation, and they would have to sell why we, Toyota, should build our next car plant in, in Belfast. 
And so that's like, you know, a really easy sell, but there's a certain structure to it. There's a certain detail you would need, your, your competition, your, your value propositions and so on and so forth. And whenever you sit down and look at Belfast and it's like as a, as a, as an entity or Northern Ireland as an entity and you talk about the distribution points and the two airports and the ports and the two universities and the willing and able labor force, it is a very compelling place to bring events and people to, isn't it? Do you know what? Our hit rate, our conversion rate is 97%. If we can get the people to Northern Ireland and Belfast, our conversion rate is fantastic. The biggest challenge we have is the little bit of water between us and the, and the you know and the rest of the UK. It's the it's the the actual thought of it. People think we're further away, and even business that we're chasing in the Republic of Ireland, people think you know of going south as opposed to coming north. So there's a big piece um, of work in terms of getting people here. But when we get them to Belfast, it's a completely compelling proposition. You know, you're 100% right, but it's getting them here in the first place is probably the biggest challenge, Paul. And you compete very heavily with against Dublin then. So like even getting anybody onto the island, Dublin obviously has that cachet of the big tech companies and, you know, it's a bigger city, I guess, in population terms and that, but you're not afraid of going head to head with them. Like, you, like we have a very different proposition. You know, we're 100 euros cheaper a night for a hotel. Mm. Uh, so like straight off the bat, if you look at, a, at the value proposition, um, where we do compete against Dublin um, or where we have a competitive edge against Dublin um, is for national associations. So like the British Medical Association, the Association of Surgeons of Great Britain and Ireland, Typically, because we're on the island of Ireland, but we're part of the UK, we have a very, you, you know, we're agnostic in terms of what you need us to be, um, whereas Dublin doesn't have that. Okay, very good. Very good indeed. So the, 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 the landscape ahead and the, the, over the next 18 months, it's a very positive picture. What, what do you see without talking down about the economy and everything else? What changes do you see coming your way that you can prepare for? Do you know what? Um, so we have two sides of the business with the conferencing side and then the entertainment. And at the minute, we have World Snooker on the, at the waterfront. And we are currently sitting income-wise up over a third. Um, ticket sales-wise up 20% um, on our highest year previously for just for the, the World Snooker. And we watch it really closely because we're thinking, oh, you know, austerity, you know, cost of living crisis we're going to see a big impact. And we like, I have the daily sales report. Um, like during COVID, we sold three tickets. That was the lowest. Every day we sold a ticket, even though we were mandated shut. Three tickets. So like people buy tickets. It's quite incredible that people buy tickets, even when you're shut. But we have actually seen that it's been tracking ahead of 2019. And we keep thinking, oh, we're going to, this month, you know, we'll see this crunch. This month we'll see, we'll see an impact. But it's been, it's actually been okay. We were, we were worried to a certain extent, but each month we're sort of proving ourselves wrong. Um, and I don't know, like our, our marketing is good. Um, our segmentation is good in terms of our customers. We're bucking the trend in terms of our occupancy. So I don't know if my team's just amazing, which they are, or if, you know, or if the media is playing things up more than, than maybe yeah. it is. So, or maybe it's just no, November's, um, gas bill hasn't come in yet and then people will see the reality of what's happening from the conferencing side of the business um 
we have now seen that there's a bigger drive for people to meet face to face. Like they've had enough of a Zoom call. Um, the one challenge that, well, the challenge that everybody has is energy bills are going through the roof. Like it's very hard. We book business, we book business right out to 2030. And part of the bid will be catering. So you couldn't, you couldn't estimate what your grocery bill is going to be in a year's time, never mind feeding 1,500 people at a conference. So that's a, that long that long that long pipeline in terms of when we book business to when it actually happens um people don't like uncertainty so decisions can take a bit longer and then when they do happen everything has to happen really quickly um our delegate numbers so delegates we had a conference in september there um now as luck would have it we were really busy April through to June. So we had a really good grasp on things. We had one conference of 1,400 people and three weeks before there was 800 booked. Mm-hmm. Three weeks before and 800. So it was an extra 600 people we had to feed. So that puts pressure on our catering team. Um, it put pressure on the event organizer because they need a certain amount of people like from a commercial perspective, you know, to, from a break even. Um, but we were able to take the lessons that we had over that quarter with a with an organization that was running its first post-COVID conference and say, listen, guys, two, three weeks out, your delegate numbers are going to been telling you there's going to be a surge. It's happened every single conference that we've had so far. So we were able to give a little bit of comfort, but that uncertainty is hard to plan for. And I think that's the, it's how you actually manage, how you manage the risk and you also make the most of the opportunity and that you can be flexible with it. Going back to your, you talked about your, your sales team there. Um, what do you you've obviously built sales a sales culture everywhere you've been be it the chamber of commerce aifa and the icc what how do you start building what do you look for and how do you craft it from the ground up because presumably when you went into well the changes in the ifa were dramatic really when you came in it was one thing and when you left it was an entirely different thing so what do you look for when you're building a team una you know i think for me in terms of building a team that so I played Gaelic football for Down. Um I play sport I played rugby I, I I just I love sport and I think one of the big easy things in sport is you have a shared goal which is to win you know um from a business's perspective it's looking at a core purpose you know it's and something that's beyond just hitting your numbers because hitting numbers isn't really enough um, so for me, whenever I'm pulling a team together, it's making sure that I have somebody that's bought into the bigger purpose. You know, like this is what we're trying to do. So from a ICC Belfast, the Waterfront and Ulster Hall, it's we see that we have an impact socially, culturally, as well as economically to Northern Ireland in terms of leaving a legacy and making just making a difference, making it better. Um, so whenever I'm recruiting for a team, one, they have to be bought into a bigger bigger sense not be selfish I suppose is a big thing but attitudes everything you know um if you've got a sales team that understand that they have to one work as one team you know it's not a set of individuals um you have to work as an organization right across the board within my team we have two rules um number one is if you say you're going to do something you do it and uh, the second is that you have each other's back and having each other's back isn't covering for people it's Actually, straight out saying it's like here, Paul, you have a bit of spinach in your teeth. Do you know? It's actually telling you when you've done something wrong. It's it's not letting things fester. You know, if there's something that's annoyed you, you actually call it out straight off the bat and say, Do you know what? This actually had a real impact on me. And it could be something that you thought was a flippant comment, but the people have the right to call you out, and people have the right to call me out as the as a sales and marketing director. 
Um, and I think that, to me, when you've got a core, when you've actually got a core set of rules, everybody knows what they're meant to do. Like rules of engagement. Like we always turn our camera on in a Teams meeting. You know, if I phone you, I expect your camera to be on. Uh, now, if you turn around and say, listen, I've just, you know, had a, had a, my face is frozen because I've just come out of the dentist or whatever. That's, you know, it's not like, it's not sackable offense of people. But we have rules of engagement and we're really upfront so people know what to expect. And I think that that straight off the bat, whenever people know the playing field yeah. and then they buy into it or they don't. That's down to them to buy into it, I guess, isn't it? And you, once you're very clear and transparent about what they, why everybody turns up in the morning and what it's all about, then it's every, after that, it's, um, I always use the phrase, the phrase, if it's the base, down to me, you know, you've got to come along and do, show you're part of it. Have you found recruiting easy and um, do you see the expectations in people change as time has gone on and what they're prepared to do and what hard work looks like and what you what you can get out of people? Do you know, Paul, it's, salespeople are, like, it, it's actually rare to find a good salesperson, which seems incredible because, because there's no big master's degree. There's no, you know, like there's there should be, a, I think, a better program in terms of turning salespeople out. Um, but our latest recruit, Cairn, um, came and he was front of house in a hotel. And we have spent uh, this past, he's been with us nearly a year and he's amazing. And it took him three months to get his head around actually having like a sales job. Does that make sense? Yeah. Another yeah. three months, you could really see it. And then this past six months, he's been exponential in terms of of how he's actually delivered for the business from a, from a sales perspective. But if I look at what he brings to the team, um, is he's his attitude like he just he wanted to do the right thing and I think for us from our sales approach like we are not hard cold salespeople like there's no cold calling like we're very relationship driven it's very much about education um it's about utility marketing it's about giving it away for free we don't like if we see something that works we believe in R&D which is rob and deploy mm-hmm. um and we're willing to share our learnings with, with with our clients we're willing to share our learnings with other people because it actually is for the greater good. You know, we don't like we don't have school bags up. We have a real ethos of when we win, everyone wins. And that's how we negotiate. We my dad's a cattle dealer, so I'd mentioned that. And he used to say to me, and I shave it, don't skin it. Let leave something for the herd to grow back. Yeah, yeah. You know, so when you're negotiating, that's you know <laughs> that's, that's really that's really important. And there there was a culture, and I probably my background in media, I got caught up into that whole idea, like you know, leave somebody nailed to the wall. But that was because in that industry, certainly over in England, it was very, um, it was adversarial to a point, you know. And and um, when you when you're able to move away from that, and when you're able to look at leave, leave something on the table for everybody, because everybody ultimately has to eat. And it's not about it's not about victory; it's about progress. It's about t- trying to build a relationship, as you talk about, and, and move forward. One of one of the things you mentioned about the. Um, the sales, the you know, there's no masters in sales or whatever, and part of that is a problem, I think, because um, at the last podcast I had a guy on who's a trainer also, and he was talking about um, seven years to train as a doctor, but you come out as a junior doctor, five years come out as a barrister, you come out as a junior barrister, sales training is two weeks on an onboarding, there's your iPad and your car, and away you go, and you know, or you learn on the job, or there's nothing wrong with the deep end, but you know, the selling, regardless of the pressure or the uh, weight behind it in terms of uh, how you how you play the game or how you, how you uh, if you want to be aggressive or you want to be really driven or if you want to be um, number one in the market or whatever it is 
you have to create a process and you have to stick to a certain process and you have to understand that, you know, the process needs to be refined and refined and refined. If you're playing football, your first kick of the ball is not going to be your best. If you're an actor or an actress or whatever it is, you know, you have to rehearse your lines till you become so proficient that it looks really natural. And this is the idea of people saying that they're naturally gifted salespeople. I just don't think they exist, you know. You have to work at it. Totally agree. Okay. Um, okay. My first ever sales meeting, uh, the guy had to go and get me a glass of water because I my, my throat closed over. I, I couldn't speak. I actually couldn't speak. I, like, he said, you want, I, it was awful. The guy was, the face was flying out of me. I could barely hold it together. Um, my voice was shaking. And he was like, do you need a glass of water? And I was like, yes, please, could I have a glass of water? And I, I ended up doing business with this guy um, eventually. But, he, you know, I was trying my best. I was 22. I was only at a university. And whilst it sold calves, it was a lot easier selling calves to a farmer than it was. Um, it was actually leadership training was what I was selling at the time. So, so reverse back to the cattle Trading and not rustling, cattle trading, just so I get that right, in case some of my cousins start beating up on me. <laughs> um, what did you learn? What was the big learning that you would take away from that really early life experience? So, so I, like I was brought up on a farm, you know, and um, one of the things whenever I started in an office job, I couldn't believe it was over. You know, we stopped and there was still work to be done. Mm-hmm. Whereas at home, you know, you had to get the place read up before you could finish. And if that was at five o'clock, six o'clock, eight o'clock, whatever, you know, but you didn't. So there was a, there was an end time in an office, which I find remarkable. I didn't you know, it was a real that was a real lesson to me. I think from from a farming perspective and from a cattle dealing perspective is long term, you need a good client base. Right. Sell it once. So that is you build a relationship. So I want to be able to go to the same man's yard and be able to sell him calves as opposed to constantly having to build a relationship from scratch. I think building trust is unbelievably important and becoming like a trusted advisor. So it's not not every calf is right for every man, you know, but you were sort of looking at the angle. Okay, well, why should they buy this? Like, what's the angle? What's in it for them? And if you focused on like why they should do it and equally sometimes just saying, do you know what? Like I remember being in a sales meeting one time and uh, the guy was just giving me a, he was giving me a hard time. I knew he wasn't going to buy it. So I just closed up the folder and I says, listen, there's no point in me staying here wasting any more of your time. You know, what should we call it quits here? And he was raging. And he says, I'm going to phone your company and complain. I says, I says, right, that's fine. I says, were you going to buy off me? And he says, no. And I says, well, what are you going to complain? What are you going to say? You know, your salesperson that I'm not buying off left. I said, they'd be delighted. Now I went into the car and was nearly sick. I was like, oh my God, I'm going to get the sack. But at that moment in time, I was like going, like, I'm wasting my time. This is, you know, yeah. makes no sense. You know, and I think um, my dad would have said to me, like, never argue with an agent. Um, which basically meant if you're not going to win the fight, you know, if there's, you know, if there's nothing, just don't argue. Just, you know, let that go. Just, it's not worth the fight. People, people that aren't familiar with that environment, certainly people who aren't familiar with that environment circa 60, 50, 40 years ago when things were particularly tough and there was less protection, there was no farm diversification at play, there was nothing like that. And, you know, you talk about the work ending, the, work, the time the work started and, you know, all conditions and, you know, your cattle, mad cows disease in the 1990s, 
and all of the adverse weather conditions you're dealing with. Like it's a hardy business, you know, for a start. And I know, I know this from some of the people around the Moy and some of the people, cousins and that I have, that the name and brand reputation of farmers travels miles before they tip up on the dealing day. And so if you're one family in particular who, who's, whose name is Donahue, who could have sold every single, could have sold up and down the country twice over because the reputation of the father and the family was, was beyond reproach, was exemplary, you know. And you talk about the, the brand, working the brand and everything else and the, every, the money will come. I think that's probably something that could go back even as far as that, you know. But it's an unforgiving. The, the guy next door to me here has got about 19 black cows out in the field. I don't know what, what a black cow is. It's just limousine. Black, right? I'm going to go with limousine. Limousine, right, okay, there you go. And, uh, like, he's flipping them every couple of weeks and the work to get them and the silage at the back and, you know, Anyway, this is not farming Farmers Weekly here. So, um, <laughs> although although it's a lot a lot to be said for it, and you're going into the I, IFA as if I can if I mention the subject as a, as a female in a very male dominated arena uh, of a particular mindset. There's a lot of changing to be done. Uh, this was I was the first female director in 134 years. Um, probably the most interesting was my my first my first day. I was shown to my office and they closed the door after me. And there was a password on top of the laptop. And I was like, "Where's the toilets? Where's it? Where I can get a cup of tea?" You know, it was it was quite quite different. I had um, this was my background was that I like I, I had never been to a soccer match before um I called it soccer not football to me football was Gaelic um so it was quite a quite a mind shift for me in terms of right well what do I need to do so I was brought in to commercialize the business so it was an association it was um the football club there'd been huge investment in terms of opening the national stadium um at Windsor Park and this was opening and it was basically right we have a business here that we need to be doing a turnover of 20 million um, and we need to have a structure in place to do it. And I think for me, whenever I came in, I looked at it and I thought, wow, there's a there, there's actually a there was a lot to be done. There was a there was a there was an awful lot to be done. And I think the first thing was making sure with the right people on the right bus. Um, and it was making sure that the that we understood. So we did a huge amount of research and worked closely with UEFA um on a on a grow program. So I as I said, I didn't know anything about football. Um, but they had this they had this grow program, Grow 2020, it was called, and they they funded it to the tune of a hundred odd thousand um, consultancy and support. So it was based on these four pillars of football. The first being brand and image, and they did a they actually did a research project for football in Northern Ireland. Thousand people across demographics across different counties. You know, like a real snapshot of a thousand people. Like that's bigger than a government survey. And the most interesting result for me was that 71% of people said that if we qualified for a major tournament, it could help unite the people of Northern Ireland. Um, wow. Which was the exact same number as the Good Friday Agreement. 71% of people said yes. Mm-hmm. Wow. So it was, to me, I was thinking, wow, right, so qualification. And we were on the cusp, like we were we were on the cusp of, of, of qualifying for the Euros at this stage. And it just suddenly hit home in terms of, my God, like, if what do we, you know, we need to actually leverage this. We need to actually make a difference 
um, and use it for Northern Ireland. You actually use it for the good of Northern Ireland. So um, Michael O'Neill was a great man. He would have been, he'd have played videos before, like small videos before the um, matches, you know, to, stuff to really give a sense of where and belonging to the team mm-hmm. in terms of Northern Ireland. And he had been, he had this figure, and I said, you know what, 71%. And he started incorporating that in. So everyone was like, actually, we're playing for a wee bit more than just the pride of the jersey, you know. We're playing a wee bit more than just to win this. Could it really help in terms of Northern Ireland? Um, so then, like, like, I can't tell you, like, the, the, the like the West, like, you know, this, the, the cop, um, it, like, it broke. Um <laughs> So it moved. Um, I can't really say any more than that there, other than we had to get chairs, we had our seats taken from Southampton on a boat because we didn't know where we were going to be able to play the Hungry match at Windsor Park or not. We looked at a number of different places. We then had, um, we then drew against Hungary and then we were up against Greece. And like, I think for, like in terms of that match, whenever we won, like it was just the relief as much as anything but boom, my work started then. Do you know, I was like, right, okay, you now have to capitalise on this. And one of the things is, I suppose football had previously been looked at as, as I suppose, divided society, you know. Um, you had the Republic of Ireland team, you had the Northern Ireland team, and, you know, it was making sure that how do you actually get people to buy in? And we, the big thing that we looked at was, okay, support your homegrown hero, like, you know, support, like, so you're from um, Tro, support Niall again. So, like, they have said to you before, like the GAA came out, you know, and uh, said we're supporting Niall McGinn at the Euros. Now, they might not have been supporting Northern Ireland. Um, so we did a big campaign, a big billboard campaign. We had Kyle Lafferty down in um, Fermanagh. We had Niall and Tarot. We had Josh McGuinness and Bangor. We had, we had all the players and those that were maybe from England um, but had Northern Ireland um, heritage. We, we peppered them throughout the city and we did big campaigns um, in round it. And we got so much support. We actually, our shirts, the Northern Ireland shirt outsold in JD Sport, England and Wales three weeks in a row and around the Euros. We actually ran out of shirts. It was phenomenal. And, and so what, what what culture needed to be changed to anchor that down? Because you know, with or without the success, you needed to change anyway, right? On field was brilliant to capitalise on, but you had to change loads of stuff regardless of that success to move forward. What what was what did you how did you bring the team together to get behind you? The research. So whenever you turn around and everybody was from Northern Ireland, whatever wherever you were from, from whatever community you were from, but everybody wanted to be part of the the that story of success in terms of making a difference, in terms of leaving a legacy. And what we wanted is that every child in Northern Ireland would be proud to wear the Northern Ireland shirt. Yeah, okay. You know, and I think that for us, we measured it in the success of the shirt. Um, So would you be comfortable wearing a Northern Ireland shirt? And that was was what we were buying into. Um, And it it was massive because, again, it goes back to that sense of purpose. And then it was like, okay, well, what's my part? What am I doing? And so we weren't just... Like whenever we got um, we got the suits, we got the suits sponsored um, by Bogarts. And it wasn't just about getting the, the suits sponsored. It was like, okay, well, how do we make a video out of it? How do we do this? How do we show it as a real standout moment? How do we make Northern Ireland look like at its best light? Like all the other thing that we did is for the media centre, it was 230 media from around the world in the, in the Northern Ireland media centre. We're playing Germany. They the current world champions, so they were the World Cup holders at the time. 
And we give every single media person that come in a USB with, we'd work with Tourism Ireland and Tourism Northern Ireland with images of horses going across the beach in the North Coast. We had the Giro uh, d'Italia. We had, so whenever they Googled, they didn't have the troubles and people clawing stones at each other. So we we control the narrative in terms of the story of Northern Ireland. When you walked into our media centre, we had six signature tourism projects. So we didn't have... We didn't have logos everywhere because the amount that we would have got wouldn't wouldn't actually pay us. We used it to sell Northern Ireland because we were never winning the Euros, like let's face it. So for us, how were we actually using it to sell Northern Ireland on the world stage and actually control the narrative? And you talk about a culture, whenever you've got this big goal and everybody's saying, right, well, what's your place? We need X amount of pounds to do this. We need that from a sales. All of a sudden, you're not selling, you're actually changing the world. And that becomes... Yeah so compelling like it's yeah. you know everybody was bought in and everybody you spoke to and like we we couldn't sell on i like their population is 1.8 million 1.9 million in northern ireland so you couldn't compete with england or scotland even in terms of numbers so we had to sell on passion and emotion and you know research that was going to change the world make a difference control the narrative be part of this amazing change story of a country that has peace that now needs prosperity that really needs to build its reputation on a global stage and much better one than the euros that's a compelling story as you tell it and i'm conscious of how i would have framed the conversation in my head there was a certain uh perception of that part of belfast and everything that stood for and all that but but you can get stuck telling yourself that story over and over and over again, despite the fact that everyone else has moved on. And the picture you're painting, both with the IFA and with the ICC, is uh, something that the politicians could be more cognizant of when they talk to each other and when they present themselves in the media, because it's not a picture we get sold very often on the sport channel or indeed in the news channels. That's another story, I guess. Um, so, you, so you, the, the big challenge that sits ahead for you now, um, what would success look like if you were saying, um, you know, this is my three-year target, what, what would that look like for you with, with your current role? Yes, yeah, so we, we work on a five-year plan um, simply because the sales cycle is so long for an international conference from initial identifying one that we could go after to actually it happened four years. So it's a really long, long sales and quite complex um, sales cycle. Um, so for me, in terms of the business, we're looking at 50% on top of what we've got now. Um, it's looking from, a, and that's from the ICC side, but making sure that it's aligned to the 10X strategy. So making sure, so for example, we have got Cyber UK coming. Um, we have the international um uh, compound composite materials handling composite material compound conference association in the summer but it's aligned to our expertise in northern ireland so is, we can yeah. we can elect we can effectively bring any conference but what we want to do is showcase the best that northern ireland and belfast has to offer so if we can make sure that we go after the right conferences we become part of that i suppose part of a that economic development, but we become an engine for it. So, like a so, for example, with FDI, foreign direct investment, you're asking somebody to marry you by asking them to come to Northern Ireland, but bring a conference. It's like a first date. It's a cup of coffee, have a look around you, and then when they come and they experience Northern Ireland and Belfast, say, 
Actually, it's quite a young population. It's well educated. There's two universities, the two airports. Dublin's only an hour and a half down the road. And all of a sudden, the compelling proposition you talked about for Toyota and the Belfast Chamber of Commerce, you're showing it, but it's an easier sell a three day conference than move thirty people to Belfast. It is surely, yeah, yeah. Um, you said cyber. Just what? What's the big draw with cybersecurity here? Is that the the businesses that are currently uh, residing here or the intellect? Yeah, we, have, we have expertise. Yeah, Northern Ireland has real expertise in terms of cybersecurity. Um, the team at Queen's University, University of Ulster, but there's like a we've got this ECIT um, hub, so we're actually recognised globally um, for cybersecurity. One of my clients is based in OMA, and they're working with some of the biggest sector leading organisations globally. Which is just, I just kind of, it's, it's brilliant that that's happening. That we're there's a different kind of security. There's a different kind of engineering. It's all it's all moving in the right direction. I'm con- I'm conscious of staying on the sales side of things. So I wanted to ask you some um, if you were. <sighs> If you were a consultant and you were coaching an individual or somebody that you wanted them to improve their performance in, in, in a way, what, what what would you, what are the, the sort of two or three things that you'd want them to focus on to get better at what they're doing in sales? Because you've had a, a quite a brilliant trajectory and I'm sure all the learnings in every single job, you know, has helped you move on to the next one and the next one and the next one. But on a purely sales basis, what advice would you give to somebody to push them forward? Okay, at 80-20, up front, spend 80% of your time prospecting. So just gather the list of the people that you want to go after. So don't do a piecemeal. So don't see something shiny, chase it up, get one meeting. You need to get it all in a pot up front and say, right, for example, um, we can. I know that we can host 120 conferences that look like this. What are these 120 conferences? And put all your effort into identifying who it is, why it is, research it, and then go in a block of time to chase rather than jumping between lots of different things. So laser focused would be one. So prospecting up front, 80% of your time prospecting, um, and then the sales come. And I think one of the things that people in sales do is they, they have a hot prospect and they torture them. So they, they phone the same because, oh, yeah, this is going to close, this is going to close. Like if you have an, if it's going to close, it'll close. You know, definitely ask for the business. Um, seventy percent of people don't ask for, don't close the business. They, you know, they take them out, take them out, take them, but they don't actually do the deal. Um, so definitely ask for the business. But if you, you know, once you've asked for it, that's enough. And once somebody's bought from you, put the pen down. Just put the contract in front of them and stop talking. Because I've seen people talk themselves out of a sale. I've actually seen people have had sold and then continue, continue and you're like you're like yeah. nice stop talking you know yeah yeah that's very good advice okay good advice yeah um you know, thanks very much i'm conscious of the time it's been really really brilliant um uh, you're very active on your social media very active on linkedin um i'm sure some people probably want to reach out to you just sure. uh, hit you up and follow you Go ahead, no problems. I mean, if, from a from a sales perspective, if I, this was my advice to anybody that wants to get in sales is like you just just in your own head, don't think that you've ever you can be beat. You know, you'll lose some sales, but you'll never be beat. Definitely, yeah. And thanks very much. That's really You're very welcome. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Bob. Take care now.
I'm just going to pause that in one second. Let me put my glasses on. No, that was deadly. Thank you. All right. Oh, really good. Yeah, really good. Um, 